A few years ago, there was a building in Dallas that was being demolished. Unfortunately, the explosion didn't work properly, and the building began to lean. It was stuck in that position for several weeks. It became known as the Leaning Tower of Dallas. People came from all over the area trying to take a picture with the tower because if you put your hands in the right place and you had the camera in the perfect position, then it would appear as if you were holding up the building. You've probably seen many different pictures like that. Maybe a, a person holding the moon in the palm of their hand. Or a photo that shows two people looking at the same number, but from different places. And one says it's a nine. Another person says, "Oh no, it's a six. Or are you seeing the images where you know is it a a rooster? Or is it a lady's head? You know, it depends on how you、uh, look at the picture. That's the thing about perspective. We can all be looking at the same information and yet draw different conclusions." This is perfectly illustrated in the life of the next judge. Let me show you how on this episode of By the Verse. Thanks again for taking some time out of your busy schedule to dive into God's Word with me. It really is a privilege to work with you and and work through the Bible chapter by chapter, learning whatever we can learn as we go along together. Now, in our last episode, when we talked about Deborah and Barak and about their deliverance and how the people had rest, it says they had rest for forty years, which could simply be a way of denoting a generation. In the story that we are about to read, we'll end up dealing with several of the same tribes that we encountered in the last couple of chapters. But now, what we're doing is we're fast-forwarding one generation, and we seem to be back at square one. So let's read chapter six, starting at verse one. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents; they would come like locusts in number. But both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So the pattern that we've been dealing with here repeats itself again. People fall into idolatry, and so God punishes them by giving them over or making them weaker. Really, making them weaker than Midian. Now this happens to be for a seven-year period, which is relatively short compared to the other oppressions that we've already dealt with. But as the next few verses explain, there was something different about this oppression that made it special and unique. 
The others were military oppressions, which always has economic impacts, okay? But it's, this one is not primarily military. Uh, this one had no king attached to it that was a, a specific leader who was oppressing God's people. Instead, it's a people group called the Midianites, along with two other people groups who swarm in at harvest time and they swallow up all the crops and some of the flocks and herds. These people were semi-nomadic groups who utilized camels to increase the range that they could travel. A camel could go longer without water, which meant uh, you didn't have to hurry from one watering hole to the next. They could also carry more. This is like putting a bigger gas tank on your car while at the same time making the car more fuel efficient. You could just go further. So the Midianites were from a land far south of Judah and Simeon, southeast actually of Judah and Simeon. So these long-range camel weapons make perfect sense. On the surface, you would think that they would come right up through Simeon and Judah and up through uh, Benjamin and so that these particular tribes would be uh, affected as much as the others. But they are not mentioned here. In looking at a map, it actually uh, appears that the Midianites probably traveled up the king's highway, which came through the land of Midian, along the backside of the Dead Sea. And once they made it to the top of the Dead Sea, that's when they could go west and fan out all across the northern tribes. And that's why Benjamin and Judah and Simeon aren't uh, a part of this story, because they were saved by the sea, the Dead Sea. So, as I've said uh, earlier, this is primarily an economic oppression because these Midianites would come annually in such great number, uh, they would come like locusts. They would smother the land, and people were so intimidated by them that they would hide themselves. This economic oppression is interesting because the supposed benefit of worshiping Baal well, is that he sends rain. That's pretty important if you grow crops, especially in an arid region. You worship the fertility uh, cult, not just for uh, fertility in your body, but fertility in the ground. That's why these two always go together. They have the allure of economic prosperity. But here, it has caused the people of Israel to be economically impoverished. God will put his finger on the very thing that, you, that has your heart. Sometimes, God will allow trouble in the area of your life that has an idol because he wants to shake it out. He wants to expose it for what it is. So these Israelites who have worshipped at the altar of prosperity have worked all year long. And when harvest time came, their paycheck was gone. The Midianites would swarm in and devour as much as they could. And all of us have had to absorb some type of financial hit at one time or another. But after seven years of this, the people were brought very low. The New King James says they were greatly impoverished. You know, the sad commentary on the condition of our hearts is that often 
we have to be brought very low. We have to be brought low by circumstances in order for us to finally perform the most natural act of a child of God, which is simply to cry out to our Father. And that's what we read in verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Notice what God does here. He doesn't immediately send a solution. Instead, he confronts them. This is an opportunity for repentance. God has no pleasure in seeing his children suffer. But instead of just rescuing them instantly when they cry, what he wants is heart change. So he sent an unnamed prophet. How I wish we had more unnamed prophets in our time. The prophet echoed what the angel of the Lord said all the way back in chapter 2. What God was looking for was loyalty. He, He felt like After everything that he had done for these people, he should have finally won their loyalty. I mean, what was there left for him to do? Make them robots so that they have no choice but to obey? He's saying that he's done his part, but they haven't. We shouldn't think that this message went out over a PA system so that every Israelite heard it. We don't exactly know how the message was delivered. Was it delivered one time? Was it delivered in a large gathering? Uh, Did this prophet go around for some time speaking this same message over and over and over? We don't know how it was delivered, but what we do know from how the writer of Judges writes this is he shows us that there was no response from the people. There is no response listed here. Now, maybe there was one, but it wasn't significant enough for the writer to tell us about it. But even though we don't see an appropriate response from the people, we do see God still being faithful to fulfill his commitment to raise up a deliverer. Let's read it, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, is the Lord with us? Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? 
And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So here we meet Gideon. Of all the judges, Gideon and Samson get the most attention in the book. We don't exactly know why this is. Many people have some speculations about it, but Gideon gets three chapters. Samson gets four. They also share the angel of the Lord in their story. Okay. So Gideon deals with the angel of the Lord himself. Samson has the angel of the Lord speak to his mother. In this case, it becomes particularly clear that the angel of the Lord really is the Lord. Because even the writer here refers to him as the Lord in verse 14 and verse 16. This encounter happens while Gideon is hiding his wheat harvest in a wine press, which would have been a hollowed out rock uh, with an opening at the bottom so that uh, the grape juice would have been able to flow through. Under normal circumstances, uh, you would not have used a wine press to uh, beat out uh, the wheat. The Israelites would have done that up on maybe a mountain or a hill. They would have utilized uh, the breeze to help blow away some of the chaff from the wheat. And the Midianites uh, would certainly uh, not have expected this. So it actually was a pretty good ploy. Now, I won't beat Gideon up here for being fearful as many people have done. I actually think this is pretty ingenious. I mean, none of us have lived under uh, the fear of the Midianites, and this guy is still getting it done, okay? So let's get off his back here. Now, in the intro, I talked about perspective and how we can look at some of the same information and yet draw different conclusions. Here, Gideon shows us that his perspective on God and his perspective on himself are very different from God's perspective. First, the angel of the Lord says that the Lord is with you. Gideon's response is, that can't possibly be true. My circumstances show that God isn't with me. If God is really with us, this wouldn't be happening to us. I mean, we've heard this before. Uh, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We fall often into this type of thinking where we can't see the picture correctly. The reason they are going through this isn't because God is not with them. It's because they are not with God. But Gideon isn't ready to see that angle yet. So the angel of the Lord, he calls him a, a man of valor. He says, go in this might of, of yours and save Israel. Gideon's response was, listen, my father's clan is the weakest in our whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am like the least in my father's house. Now, I think that the rest of this story, as we read through it, is going to show 
that at least part of that is not the whole truth, okay? But that is how Gideon saw himself. God saw him as a mighty man of valor. Gideon saw himself as the least of the least, really. Thankfully, we serve a God who gently leads us on toward what he has for us. And I think the rest of this chapter is about Gideon becoming more and more aware of God and aware of who he is and what God has called him uh, to be. So what Gideon wants to do is to bring this angel uh, a present. Now, Gideon doesn't know that it is an angel. We know that because the writer tells us, but Gideon doesn't really know that yet. But I think at this point, Gideon has a suspicion because the word present that's used here is actually the same word that's used for the free will offering. So I think it's an indication that maybe Gideon thought something spiritual uh, was actually happening to him. So let's read on at verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unloving cakes, unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out of the, out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. So here we have an indication uh, that Gideon's clan, okay, his, his family wasn't quite as low as Gideon would like us to believe. First, an ephah of flour weighed between 34 and 45 pounds. Okay, it's a lot of flour. And uh, he had a young goat, which probably is an indication that he had more goats. So he took a young goat. Okay, so this is uh, a really substantial offering, especially in a time of great scarcity. Okay, and the way he laid it out shows that he was presenting it as a type of offering. So after the angel calls fire to come up from the rock and consume the offering and then vanish, well, Gideon's suspicion was confirmed. Surely it was the angel of the Lord. Okay, so Gideon responds by building an altar here. I really think this is like a, the beginning of a revival in Gideon's heart. Okay, it is really the beginning of heart change in him. Building this altar to the Lord is a significant step of faith for him. And it would be a place where he could come and remember the interaction that he had had with God. Let's read on at verse 25. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and put down 
Pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So here the Lord engages him yet again. Now we don't know that it was the uh, angel of the Lord appearing again, or it was just God speaking to him and him knowing that it was God. But whatever it is, he God spoke to him and told him uh, that he wanted him to tear down uh, this altar. Okay, This is yet again an indication to us that his family wasn't quite as meager as he made it out to be in the beginning. First, his father has uh, multiple bulls. Because he's going to take one bull to pull down the altar and one bull uh, to sacrifice uh, on the altar, okay? His father had erected uh, these altars, which could mean that they were uh, the custodians of the this local altar, okay? This was not a private family altar, just kind of on their family land, all right? This was for the benefit of the town. So they were the patrons of this uh, altar or the caretakers of this altar. And it was for everybody to see and everybody knew about as we find out in the next uh, section. Okay, Uh, so this is not some unknown, obscure family who's the least of the least of the least. And this guy can take 10 of the servants, not 10 servants, as in the only servants he had, but 10 of the servants he could go and uh, do this, and he did it by night, which again, yes, he was fearful of what would happen, fearful of his family, but again, this guy is stepping out into totally new territory. He probably should be a, a little bit concerned about how this is going to go down, and I don't think we should necessarily beat people down for being fearful and yet still pressing on and doing, finding a way to still do what God had called him to do. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been burnt. And they said to one another, who has done this? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubabel. Uh, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. So the next day, okay, people wake up. Obviously, this is a public place where people could see and realize uh, what happened and just uh, you know to be helpful to you if you ever want to go and do something secretly at night don't take 10 people with you 
because it's not going to stay a secret for very long. Ten men can't keep uh, a secret when when the whole town is trying to figure out uh, who did this. So here uh, we have Joash, the father of Gideon, stepping up to the plate and really being shrewd and being strong. I think this not only shows the father's wisdom, but I, I'm i going to say I think it also shows the father's clout uh, among the people, okay, that he could stand up and he could speak on behalf of his son. Now, Joash has not completely forsaken Yahweh. I mean, he taught his children, you know, about uh, Yahweh. But what he has done is he has worshiped Yahweh, but added Baal because it made sense in that day. It probably was maybe even a little practical uh, to mix things together. And so uh, what God is going to do, though, is he's never going to put up with that, okay? He's never going to be second fiddle. He doesn't want to be combined with anything else, okay? And so as uh, Joash stands up for his son, he basically says, listen, if Baal is really anything at all, I mean, he can just strike Gideon with a lightning bolt. After all, he is the storm god, right? Like he does have that power, right? And obviously his argument, and I think his stature in the community was enough to make everybody back down, but it also landed Gideon this nickname, which basically means, uh, you know, let a Baal plead his case, you know, let Baal contend against him or fight for himself, basically. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 34. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon and Naphtali and they went up to meet him. So now it's that time of year where the uh, Midianites and, and their group, the Amalekites and the people of the east, which were from the Syrian desert, uh, they were going to come and do their annual plundering of Israel. But the Spirit of the Lord has clothed Gideon. which He has empowered him now. And so Gideon now can sound the trumpet. He can sound the call of leadership. And wouldn't you know, the first to follow this guy are his family. I mean, usually... The, the family is the last to follow you. They want to see other people follow you before they do. Okay, but this guy has made a remarkable transformation in just a few verses. He has gone from being the least, okay? I'm the lowest of the low. To now, he's calling out warriors and they're following him from four different tribes. That is some pretty remarkable uh, personal development, if you ask me. All right, let's pick it up in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece out of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. 
Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now, we don't uh, want to put God to a foolish test. Okay, so the idea of coming up with complicated hoops that God has to jump through to convince you to do what he's calling you to do is obviously not uh, the example that we are to follow. However, I think that if we have been following along God's actions here, we can see God is incredibly compassionate and patient. Okay, the people cry out. He tells them what they did wrong. We see no response from them at all. And he still sends a deliverer. Gideon doesn't necessarily jump right on board and he doesn't see things exactly the way that God does. And yet God continues to bring him along step by step, developing him into a mighty man of valor that begins to unfold even in this chapter. So I think it's wholly appropriate for us to be honest and lay those things that are in our hearts, those question marks, before the Lord so that the Lord can cover them. If you're struggling with whether God has really called you to do a certain thing, whether God has really put a certain thing in your heart or not, or an important decision that you need to make, why don't you just go ahead and lay out all of the hangups that you have before the Lord so that He can deal with them. He is gracious and compassionate and he loves you and he knows our frailty. Now with Gideon, we have to consider that Gideon had a lot less information about God than we do, quite honestly. We have the whole Bible uh, for us. We have sermons all the time. We have incredible podcasts about the Bible that we can listen to on a weekly basis. And Gideon didn't really have access uh, to those things. We don't really know exactly the extent of his spiritual life, but I think we see it growing in this chapter, okay? So let's be patient with Gideon because God was patient with Gideon. And so the example to us is that we just need to be honest. We need to be honest before the Lord and lay it all out there. And God is big enough to deal with that stuff, okay? He's patient. So here's the takeaway from today. Before God was ready to send uh, his deliverer out there, right? Before he sent him really into battle, what he did was he asked him to tear something down first. See, in order for God to establish a new baseline uh, relationship in Gideon's life, he had to first tell Gideon that there was something that needed to be torn down. And he didn't do the work for Gideon. Gideon had to do the work of tearing down that altar that his father had built. And that's just like God does in our lives. When God is trying to take us to another level of relationship with him, Often he will put his finger on the idol. He will put his finger on the very thing that needs to be 
torn down so that something new can be built in our lives. The question for us is, are we going to roll up our sleeves, fearful or not, questioning or not, wondering or not? Are we going to roll up our sleeves and do the work that Gideon did and tear down the altar? Well, I hope that you do. And I hope that you join us again on another episode of this podcast. I can't wait to continue walking through Gideon's story as it all unfolds. We will get to it on our next episode of By the Verse.